Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning with Dr. Samantha Cotrera podcast. Many of you know that I started this podcast as a way to share academic conference presentations, and I expanded this work in spring of 2020 in order to bring you the audio versions of the pandemic pedagogy conversations I've been hosting on my YouTube channel, Imagining a New We. For this upcoming school year, I'm going to be bringing you a second series that I'm hosting on YouTube called Source Saturday, where I talk with historians and creators and archivists about primary and secondary sources that they have familiarity with and to talk about what they read from them. Although the series does work better as a video because we screen share the sources we discuss it, there are many interesting elements of our conversation that do, that do work as a podcast, but I do urge you to check out the YouTube video so you can see the source for yourself. Like the Pandemic Pedagogy series, these podcast episodes are unedited conversations, so you may hear buffering or the repetition of a question or an answer if Zoom wasn't working that great, but the content remains fundamentally the same as the video. Enjoy this version of Source Saturday. So today for our spooky Source Saturday, we are talking to Canadian Cemetery History <laughs> on Twitter, also known as Adam Montgomery. Um, Dr. Adam Montgomery is a, a historian of um, like medicine and um, especially medicine related to World War One, um, PTSD, gender, and the way and uh, like shell shock was treated. Um, he's written a couple books; they're really fantastic. All that information is below. But in the last couple of years, he's also started the Canadian Cemetery History Twitter handle on Twitter where he talks about cemetery history. He talks about histories of death and dying. And it just seemed like a totally appropriate person to talk to for the Spooky Source Saturday series. S's. Um, so I can't wait to talk with him. He just has so much to say and he has sent such a great package of um, like documents related to this one grave that he found. But also, like I said, you can use our conversation to think about how you could maybe bring a walk in the cemetery to your classroom as a way to think about uh, to think about people in the past differently. So let's go over to Zoom and talk to Adam. Adam, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today. When I asked people about spooky things, you were so kind in suggesting people. And then people were like, also, you should talk with Adam. <laughs> so I was so glad that both uh, that the, the people that you contacted me with, like we're going to talk with them as well, but that we're really talking with you, Canadian Cemetery History. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat today. Uh, so do you want to introduce yourself and why Canadian Cemetery History is your Twitter handle? Yeah, so my name is Adam Montgomery. Um, I did my PhD actually in the history of medicine at the University of Saskatchewan, but um, long story, but I've had an interest in cemeteries my whole life. And uh, a lot of it came out of my research for my PhD on veterans history. And while I was walking those cemeteries where a lot of veterans are buried, I also was very interested in some of the old stones I had seen my whole life, but particularly at that juncture in my life, I was interested in researching more of them and, and figuring out what all the symbols meant, who all the people were, basically what we can learn from them. And it, that sort of took me down the path where over a period of years, I decided, let's see how many people are out there that also have this what's considered strange hobby as, as me, walking old cemeteries. So I started the 
Canadian Cemetery History account. It actually just celebrated two years a couple of days ago. So I'm happy about that. And um, yeah, and then sure enough, a whole bunch of people came out of the woodworks that are also interested in it. And so that sort of uh, stimulated my, my passion to want to do more of it. So I've been slowly going around cemeteries in Ontario and then elsewhere. If I'm traveling last year in New Brunswick and in Quebec City, um, photographing old cemeteries and talking about what we can learn from them. Yeah, I think it's great because we are going to talk about a specific uh, grave that you identified for me, but uh, we'll kind of end the conversation talking about cemeteries more generally and like the learning that teachers can get from them. So I'm really excited for today's talk. Thank you. Me too. So what did you share with us today. Um, the first question that we'll talk about is like, what is this source? So you sent me four different files that are all kind of related. We can go back and forth between them, but why don't we start with this one? What is this source? Okay, well, as, as I'm sure most people can guess, it is a gravestone. So it's this one, unfortunately, is, is, has broken off at the base, so it's now flat in the ground. But so this is actually in Quebec City. At a, at a place called St. Matthew's Anglican Cemetery, very old cemetery going back to, I've seen, I think the burial started in the, I want to say late 1700s there. So um, an interesting place. It's, a, it's an English cemetery in a French, largely French city. So that in itself makes it interesting. It's also the only um, large cemetery with gravestones visible that's still in in the city. The rest of them are outside of the city and the ones that were there before from older times, um, mostly what's left is just the ground itself or, or a wood marker or things like that. So uh, very fascinating place. So I was walking this cemetery last November and um, just photographing the old stones, reading them, and I came across this one um, so it's for a young woman named Elizabeth Layton and then her father, John, John Layton. So um, in researching, I wanted to look at, often with gravestones, my, my first thing I'm looking at when I look at them is the age of the, per the name, obviously, but also the age when they died and the year. So um, in John's case, it said he died in July of 1834 at a young age. So when I look at it, I think to myself, initially, like part of what I do with cemeteries is figure out when what I try to get people interested in is the fact that so many people died young in those days. What were the different causes that are different from the, the causes you see today? And sort of what kind of story can we learn from something like just looking at a date and age on a gravestone? So when I was back home, I started doing a little bit of research into John Layton, trying to find out what could I find out about him. Um, so first thing is, and I guess we can maybe go here to the death notice one that I sent you, which was from the Quebec Gazette. This one? Yeah. Um, I can't see. I can only see the, uh, the stone still. Yes, there we go. So this was from the Quebec Gazette, which is an old newspaper um, from July 18th, 1834. So here, so again, part of what I try to get across to people with this cemetery research is it's like little pieces to a puzzle, like a lot of historical research. But so you start with the gravestone, you look at the name, and then you think, what can I learn? So I thought, well, let's see 
if I can find a newspaper or something that that carries notice of his death. And in a lot of cases, you won't find this because most people didn't get get death notices back then. Um, so oftentimes you're just you hit a dead end right away. But in this case, I was lucky enough to find that the very next day after he died, so July the 18th, this issue had yesterday morning died Mr. John Layton, sailmaker, age 34. So the age is a year off from what the stone says, but that's not terribly uncommon, not really of concern. So now we've learned about John Layton, his profession, sailmaker. So kind of an interesting profession. I've never met somebody in my life who's a sailmaker, so I found that kind of interesting. Um, but then you're, so now you have another piece to the puzzle of his professions. You have a little bit more about him. So then if, then I started thinking to myself, well, what, what kind of dates, you know, in history, I often look at in, in cemeteries, you see things like a lot of, a lot of deaths from a particular year. So in this case, I thought, well, 1834, and, and he died at a young age. I, that I also knew from previous research that there was a cholera outbreak. There were cholera outbreaks in 1832 and 1834. So this started making me wonder, hmm, um, you know, lots of ways people died young then of various diseases, but it, it, it made me intrigued enough to want to see if I could learn more than that. So um, now, if you don't mind, let's go to the newspaper, the other one that's the proclamation. So now this is also from the Quebec Gazette, and this is the next week, and this is a proclamation, so province of Lower Canada, and I don't think we want to read the whole thing because we'll be here all day, but essentially this is a quarantine proclamation, and it is, this is a reaction to the cholera outbreak, and um, so you can see about halfway down, be obliged to make their quarantine, and then it talks about from any port or ports of Europe or elsewhere to make their quarantine at Gross Eel in the said River St. Lawrence and their remaining continue for the space of 40 days unless such ships or vessels respectively shall sooner be discharged from said quarantine by license given, et cetera, et cetera. So just like what we're going through right now, um, in their own way, they were trying to respond to, to this epidemic, to what was going on. So, so, they, so the very next week after he died, you're now you now have a source that tells you, okay, this was the this was the these were the circumstances, this was the environment, this was what was going on in Quebec City at the time. So again, kept me intrigued and made me wonder, hmm, what else might we have here? So then if you don't mind, we'll go to his um, death record from the Druen collection. So now this is actually, um, so what's great about this research, and, and we can talk more about that at the end, is that a lot of this research is available online because I, I went and visited in November and then, you know, planned to do more research elsewhere at different times. But because of the pandemic, basically, and on the fact that I don't live in Quebec City, sort of like, what can I get from here? So a lot of this stuff can be done online, which is great. <clears throat> so... What's interesting is there are a couple interesting things here, but what I, what I want to look at is, so on the left-hand side, this is from a thing called the Druin Collection, which is a collection of church records dating from the 1600s to the 1900s, all kinds of things from Ontario, Quebec, um, even some from, I think, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. So on the left-hand side, it says Leighton Buried. So they would have several people on these books noting the various burials, marriages, births, etc. So in his case, it says, 
John Poston Layton of the city of Quebec, sailmaker, age 32 years, age 32 years, died on the 17th of July in the year of our Lord, 1833, and was buried on the same day. So there is a mistake they made on 33 instead of 34, which I did notice, but um, I confirmed all of the rest of the people on that page were from 34. So in this case, it looks like the inscriber just actually got, wrote 33 by accident. Um, but the most intriguing part of this in terms of what I was talking about a few minutes ago is you have was buried on the same day. So in most cases, and in, in my experience, both from readings and from looking at thousands of death records, um, the traditional time for most burials was two days, sometimes three. Sometimes for infants, it would be the next day. But oftentimes it was two to three if the burial was being done locally, as in if the person died and was being buried in the same city, not requiring like transport to a far location. So what's interesting about buried on the same day is that it was very uncommon. And the reason likely that it was done is because at that time, people were burying people on the same day that died of infectious diseases. And this goes to a theory that people had called the miasma theory that essentially said that bad, it was bad air, bad vapors, whatever you want to call it, that they believed that you could get diseases sometimes just simply from bad air. So they were on to something to a certain degree, but um, in other cases, um, they were way off. But essentially, they, this leads me to, I, I don't want to say conclusion because I don't have a document actually saying he died of cholera, but you look at the stone, you look at the, the date on the stone, you look at the date on the newspaper, of the newspaper, you look at the proclamation the very next week, you look at all of the other historical sources that talk about the cholera outbreaks, and then you look at the fact that he was 33 or 34. And or was 32. Buried, yeah, or 32, <laughs> you're right. And was buried on the same day. And so this makes me think that likely he died of cholera because... It, it seems to have happened quick, and the, this, the newspaper picked it up the next day. Um, oftentimes, they wouldn't say whatever the disease was. Sometimes cholera was noted. A lot of the times, it wasn't. So, so this is just a very, um, I don't want to say quick because I've gone on a few minutes here, but this is a, just one example of all kinds of things you can do and all kinds of learning you can undertake and using different sources, um, just from your phone even, and um, just based on one one name you you read on a gravestone. So I, I found it, I've used this one a few times. I used this one in a presentation I gave a few months ago because I find it a very interesting example of all of these things you can uncover just from a name. And so, but there are two names on this grave and it's interesting mm -hmm. that the daughter doesn't have a trace in the same way. I, I mm -hmm. can't tell here, I can't read here if there is an age for the daughter's name, is there? I see Elizabeth Layton and then it's died and then it's kind of, the, the inscription's kind of eroded away there. And I see her father underneath, but I don't see an age for her. I do see a year though. Um, and it's interesting because I was talking with somebody else, gosh, I can't even remember like where the conversation was, but how, um, oh yes, I remember I was talking with someone about a 19th century newspaper and there was a birth announcement and they listed, like the only name they listed was the man's name, like so-and-so's yeah. wife gave birth to a daughter and like how, um, and how 
common it was for women and children to be associated with a man, but for men, it was very less, um, uh, like very less common to be associated with family members in ways that like gave them agency, like not just like protection Mm -hmm. of. And so it's kind of interesting here, like we see that happening too, in the fact that she wasn't listed um, in the other documents. Because when we looked at that first newspaper, when I looked at it really quickly, and I just like my eye, you know, saw the name here and then saw 11 years, I was thinking, oh, like maybe that was her and it it wasn't. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of interesting that like we get information from one person on that grave but not the other person yeah well i mean unfortunately you know and obviously historians know when you're dealing with a lot of these sources particularly 19th century sources a lot of what you're seeing is the fact that you know women were often um, spoken of in relation to their husband and children as well so but one of the things that i always I've had that that brought up on many occasions when talking about cemetery history, but one of the things I often respond with that I find um, gets people a little more intrigued is that, you know, cemeteries are actually an interesting source that in a lot of ways reflect the trends of the time, but um, genealogists love cemeteries because oftentimes the 19th century stones will carry a, a woman's birth name, um, which mm-hmm. a lot of the death records don't. Um, cemeteries all over the area here in Niagara will actually have, you know, um, Mary, let's just say Mary Smith, whatever, so the birth name in the middle. So you can actually know what her 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 um, birth name was, where you might not otherwise in something like death records, uh, newspaper records would often say Mrs. John Smith or something like that, which is very frustrating if you're trying to do research into somebody because then it's, you know, you don't even necessarily know her first name. So it is it's frustrating, but I have found there are ways you can use the cemetery sources to sort of get around that a little bit. Um, and on websites like Find a Grave, for example, you'll see a lot of people have gone on um, and and edited the the post where they'll actually put, even though the stone in person doesn't have the birth name, they've found it and then gone and put it in. So there are interesting ways people are sort of getting around that as much as they can. And um, it also makes me um as a man i have to admit it makes me more intrigued to learn those stories where and when i can and when i do find the examples where you can find more about a woman based on these sources um, it always gives me sort of inspiration to look further and it's one of the reasons i like doing this because it's um again a lot of the written texts don't necessarily have anything and so at least with these stones you'll often get something and there was a curious mix as well because um, even on that page we were just looking at, I saw on one of them was Mrs. Angelique. So, so it's like some people were given names of their own and some people were Mrs. John Smith. And so it really, um, you know, you can see, where is it down there? I can't, I right saw here. it. Yeah, Mrs. Angelique Drolet. So it's sort of like, it's interesting. You get a lot of mix back then and same with the stones as well. Um, you'll, I've seen ones where like it's a whole row for the family and half of the family will have just the just the husband's name and then others will have the birth name as well so also gets me interested in why some people chose to include that and some didn't which is a question i've been asked before and i can't give a completely satisfactory answer on but um in the same cemetery 
there was an example. I didn't use it because um, it didn't involve as many sources as this one, but there is an interesting example I came across for a woman who has a stone there where when I looked it up, it actually had an, a, an interesting little tidbit on her. She actually was a tavern owner. Her husband died. She took over running the tavern. It's called the Neptune Inn. And um, it was quite a popular, let's say, watering hole for sailors and people near the port. So she must have been a, a prominent local figure because of all the, the people coming in and out of there. And, and even on the death record, the, the inscriber actually, the registrar actually put on it um, proprietress of the Neptune Inn. So it was a very interesting and rare example for those days of, of being able to see um, not just a woman being treated on her own terms, but also a profession even listed, which was very neat because uh, again, oftentimes with these death records, the 19th century, it's, they would, they would just put oftentimes under occupation, they just strike, they just put a strike through, or they would say housewife or home duties or things like that. And so you don't often get a sense of the person. And in that, so in that case, it was very, very fascinating to me to get more. And then I, I looked up and there, there are, an, there are artist images on Library Archives Canada of the Neptune Inn. So you can get a little sense of before photography of what this little, That's it had, cool. even had a little, it even had a little sign, a little sign with Neptune poking out the side with the, <laughs> with his, uh, with his trident cool. out of the side. So it really kind of, it really brought the whole sort of scene to life. So, you know, it's interesting because one of the reasons why I don't like to call this series primary source Saturday that I just say source Saturday is because I think so often we can like, like as uh, historians and history educators, we can fetishize primary sources in a way that doesn't actually allow for the breadth and depth of sources that are primary sources, but aren't traditional primary sources. Like, um, uh, you know, this young woman does not have any, uh, does not have any sources in an archive, for example. Like she didn't create that because those weren't things that were people would identify as important things. But using a source like um, like a cemetery and gravestones, you can pull out different types of history. And I think, you know, this is just kind of like a note in this conversation about how important it is to recognize that there are so many different sources that aren't just like traditional archival sources that we often mm -hmm. just like say, but actually like say as all primary sources, and that's not true to like mm -hmm. find other things. Because one of the things when I'm walking around cemeteries, older cemeteries, I take note of also the age that people have died. And like, um, especially for babies and like, uh, like women that die like in their twenties, because, you know, you could think that it's very close to childbirth and I think of Jennifer, Dr. Jennifer Bunnell's article about Montgomery Inn here in Toronto, um, who was talking about that as a place of like a museum, as a place of interpretation. And she was like, this house would have been filled with death for a long time of the period that we're supposed to be reenacting because mm -hmm. of the death of children. And I think, uh, and like a way to place women in those narratives are to think about the ways that like women would have been doing so much of the care work around sickness and death, but also birth. And it's like, I think that being able to like re remember those conversations related to this is so, so key, even though, you know, like we were saying about this particular grave, we have far more 
sources that are about men, but that doesn't mean that the lives that the girls and women in this period would have been any less. Mm -hmm. The next question that I have is like, what do you read from this source? And I think that you've already kind of pulled out a few really important elements of what you read from a source like this. How about other things in like, in a in a grave or in a cemetery that you that you pull from that you read from that things that you look for and you're like oh that's kind of interesting or that's common or like what are some other things that you read from sources like this yeah well i mean gravestones especially this this one we're looking at here is is you know quite plain in terms of just just writing and then you know there there is a little inscription or a little epitaph underneath that um, sort of, you know, often they would have verse, epitaph verses uh, on the bottom. But when you look at a lot of 19th century gravestones, particularly from the Victorian era, you start to get a lot of ways you can read um, at least the circumstances of a person's end, sadly, um, from the stone itself without having anything else. So the best example, you brought up children. So the best example is the lamb. So when you see a lamb, on it on a on a gravestone especially if the gravestone is small and low to the ground um, you can be 99.9 percent .9 sure that that gravestone is for a child even without even in cases where the inscription has completely eroded away because of time weathering etc um, because the lamb was seen as a symbol of innocence um, and then of course in the christian tradition lamb of god etc jesus so this symbol particularly when you're walking through a cemetery can tell you a lot about somebody or at least their circumstances of their their age and their end just by the symbol itself um, so that's one example um, and then you get into all kinds of others where of the iconography with things like flowers um, one of the things when i've given cemetery tours what people find the most fascinating often are the symbols um, because they're things that we still see today but they had kind of more nuanced meanings back then, like a rose. We tend to think of roses these days as you give it because of love. You know, it's like, you, you know, a romantic uh, gesture, things like that. It's associated in that way. Um, but back then, in the 19th century, roses also meant love, but oftentimes are portrayed on gravestones wilting or with a broken stem or things like that. And this was a way of communicating often a life that was cut short or somebody that died young. And the, the symbolism, of course, the idea being before full bloom, so to speak, um, or broken bloom or those kinds of things. And you also see that even on the epitaphs, with a lot of the floral verses that relate to children, for example, um, one that says, you know, uh, bud that, uh, you know, died still in bud, now blooming in heaven and those kinds of things. So you read all kinds of things like that. Um, and then, as I said, in addition to the, the you know, the, the basic stuff. You have the iconography, you have the religious verses that tell you a lot about the culture, about how much obviously faith meant to people back then. Um, and then you also get things like um, the position of stones, the economy of stones, I guess, if you will. Um, why is one stone much larger than the other? Well, they were expensive then like they are now. So you can often read the, the community itself just by looking at the stones themselves. And then of course, the sad sections of the cemeteries, the potter's field, the pauper's graves, the pauper's areas where oftentimes no markers at all or wooden markers that disappeared over time. And so there you're looking at, for example, you know, how did people treat the less fortunate? How did people 
deal with poverty and those kinds of things. So all, all kinds of things like that. And in terms of education, um, you know, I live nearby an old cemetery and there's a high school near there. And I often, when walking down the street, have seen teenagers stopping and pointing at the stones or sitting, ta- sitting near them talking. And, and you can see they're very interested in it because um, for, for us, for a lot of us, these stones almost seem to speak a different language that, that we're not familiar with, but they almost inherently attract attention when people see them because they're works of art. They're, they're, they're a memory of somebody. They're all, there's so many things that um, I, I find people of all ages find fascinating. And I've had, you know, I've seen grandparents with grandchildren in the cemetery. I've seen parents with children. I've seen groups of friends walking around interested in them. So it's a subject that really captures people, I think, because it's not to get too philosophical, but it, it's a journey that all of us take at some point. So it's, uh, you know, something that almost inherently grabs us because it, it gets us thinking. Well, and it's a good, it's a good space. I mean, this has come up so much in so many of the pandemic pedagogy conversations about like how, how the pandemic is a moment for young people and like, you know, adults as well to reflect on the, the decisions that you're making or the things that you're doing in this like incredibly stressful time. Like that's come up a lot when I've talked to authors um, and historians about World War II, but also to like reflect on, um, and like this is a good way to, for, for young people to also reflect on their own like family experience with graves or death rituals and which ones do we expect like everyone does, but they're actually very culturally like significant or specific mm-hmm. um, to like, to also look at that like that cultural diversity of ways that we can think about uh, death and dying and also like remembrance of that, which is so key around Halloween, for example, like Mm -hmm. um, because we're posting this on Halloween or for Halloween, like um, this type of like, um, this type of like a uh, thinking of a cemetery is like the spooky place and, you know, all of these things is a a particular culturally specific thing whereas other Mm -hmm. cultures would not kind of take would would not like you sell a a halloween for example as this kind of like spooky celebration Mm -hmm. um and like i think a day of the dead like there's so many different uh traditions around death and dying and that this really helps us remember like our particular um references of death and dying are like temporally specific as well as culturally specific and geographically specific because you might not have um, mourned in a particular way if, for example, you um, had just immigrated from another country. Like that's what's interesting too when I, because I have two very big cemeteries around me that are old, but how many identify like, oh, they were born in a different country and like those Mm -hmm. transnational uh, connections I think are just so interesting. What are some other ways that using graves and cemeteries can help challenge the traditional ways we teach Canadian history? Because we can be so, you know, sometimes unintentionally bound to a traditional narrative. How can we use sources like this as a way to challenge what we think about the past? Hmm. Well, I think, you know, partly why I sort of advocate and promote, you know, keeping a lot of old cemeteries from, from, you know, they, they always 
go away on their own eventually. Nothing lasts forever. They erode and, and whatnot. They're not permanent. But why I advocate for them is that keeping them is because in a lot of cases, you know, in terms of challenging certain narratives of Canadian history or, or what Canadian means, um, you know, you brought up large cemeteries. There are a lot of large cemeteries nearby me. Um, you know, Fairview Cemetery in Niagara Falls, um, and then down, to, you know, towards um, the other direction, towards the Toronto Way in Hamilton, um, you have Woodland Cemetery. And these cemeteries actually have graves there for people of many different cultures dating back to the 1800s. So, and what I love about walking through some of the larger cemeteries is you get a, you get a little sneak peek or an insight into what other cultures have existed in that area and what other, you know, all the different, all the diversity of people, all the, all the different faiths, even if it's a municipal non-denominational cemetery, for example, Woodland Cemetery, in Burlington um, ha actually has a, a monument from the Chinese community of Hamilton that's to their ancestors and it's this beautiful granite memorial and it has you know it has some the the text in the middle is in English and then around it is in Chinese and and it actually says um, you know erected by members of the Chinese community um, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially it's, it's saying to honor their, their coming to Canada and setting up a, a way for us or a path for us. So it's essentially, you know, and this was in 1988 that it was erected. So um, a beautiful example of that, there, there's a, a Hungarian memorial there, um, you know, and so all kinds of different cemeteries. At, at Fairview in, in Niagara Falls, you have the, the Red Maple Garden, which the Chinese community set up where they planted a lot of red maples that are now growing. And, um, you know, some it's for people to be buried in that section, not necessarily Chinese, could be anybody. And um, so it's these, you know, you see, you know, a lot, there's a lot of talk of multiculturalism and you see it in the cemeteries because it, 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 there were a lot of people of white European descent here, but there were also people from a lot of other areas too, and that's reflected in these bigger cemeteries, more so in the in the newer cemeteries, but even in a lot of the older ones as well. And that's part of what I what I enjoy, and it's gotten me it's led me down some interesting rabbit holes where then I start reading. Well, what are some Chinese burial practices? What do they do traditionally that's different from what we do? Um, what do they do? What what does and, and you know I'm talking here about in China and what might what might they have brought over that is different uh, and how has that changed since they were here and then you know there are all kinds of papers there are some written in in BC on that so it really has led me down some interesting research paths that I might not necessarily have thought of until I encountered it in the cemetery. Yeah I think that's really interesting and to extend that a little bit you know when we think of diversity and multiculturalism in Canada we think of it I think for many of us in the same way that we have multiculturalism and diversity now and I think that like that's like there can be multiculturalism whereas everyone looks white right or like mm -hmm. how we would read people that are white now but yeah. um british scottish um uh, uh, irish like these all would have been multicultures too right and we can see mm -hmm. that i think in the last names on some of the stones mm -hmm. but also if you are looking not not you but if like you yes <laughs> mm -hmm. but also if you're like thinking about oh well how many 
cemeteries or how many churches do I have in this area? Like to think about, oh yeah, like though that is multiculturalism as well, even though everyone would look what we would identify as white, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting of like things that are, might be obvious to us, but then to like use these sources to think of things that are a little bit less obvious. And um, I like, and I think it's just really interesting to kind of, to be able to bring that together with something like a grave and to, um, and just to like think about the ways that, the ways that death and dying have always intersected with life and what that can then teach us when we kind of lean into learning from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's honestly something where I, you know, I, I'm not joking when I say I could talk about it all day because there are so many aspects to it, it way more even than I anticipated when I first started researching it. Um, you know, here in Niagara, we have a lot of underground railroad history. That's an entire other subject. You know, you can learn often, again, going back to sources and what one source can, how one source and one mention can lead you on down an entire sort of journey. Um, you know, I've come across death records in Niagara where the death record will note, um, for example, you know, 101 years old, birthplace, Kentucky, USA. And, and then, you know, you look at the death date for the person and, and, and you think, okay, early 20th century, if this, if this age is roughly correct, you start doing, doing it in your head and thinking to yourself, hmm, could this have been a freedom seeker? Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, it turns out to be. You can't always assume, you know, you can't assume just from a name and an age and a birthplace because there are exceptions, obviously, and, and you need to do more research than just that. Um, but in some cases, that, that is the case where it, where it turns out to be, wow, I am reading the death record of a freedom seeker from Kentucky who came to Canada, stayed in Canada. A lot of people left and went back to the States after the Civil War ended, but a lot of them stayed as well. And so I'm looking at now the death record of someone that came from Kentucky here, maybe moved around and then eventually settled in Niagara Falls, stayed there, lived their life, died at a what we would call a ripe old age, shall we say. And um, and then you think, well, like you've now have an insight into a whole life that you that you didn't even know about. And mm-hmm. it's just from asking the question, why is that? Why is the birthplace Kentucky unusual? Well, then you start putting it in, you know, piecing together in your head. And, and again, going back to the what we were talking about a, a few minutes ago, you know, Drummond Hill Cemetery in, in Niagara Falls is a site where you have, you know, white Europeans buried with black freedom seekers all in the same place. You have, you have gravestones there um, for Plato, one of the early Niagara politicians, a, a black freedom seeker. His family is buried there with him. Um, you know, you get all kinds of interesting stories you come across there um, and, and, and marked graves in a lot of cases too, which again, very special because the economic circumstances and various other things, racism and, you know, a lot of stuff prevented a lot of those people from being able to have the life necessarily they wanted. A lot of them got, a lot of them became wait staff or things like that because of porters, because they really weren't given any other opportunities. Um, but you know, occasionally you come across graves where you can see some, you can see with the person, like the name, 
the birth date, every, the birth year, the death year, everything, find a death record. And again, now start looking in some local sources before you know it. Sometimes you've pieced together a little story about a person and it's, well, um, it's, it's beautiful. It's not a word I would traditionally use for something like that, but I find it beautiful in its own way. Well, I mean, even if you don't have space or capacity to look up death records, um, you know, students can, <laughs> students might have a limited um, attention span. One of the mm -hmm. things that I heard from you was like, well, why would this be unusual? And one of the questions that I always like to ask when I'm running certain types of workshops with young people is like, what do you see that you're familiar with, like that you don't, you're not like taking note of? And what do you see that surprises you? And like, mm -hmm. it, it's a set of questions that um, aren't like, it's not, they aren't easy ways in, but if you like allow space for that kind of growth for students to like fill the space with thinking about that, they can mm -hmm. get a lot of stuff from it. Like you can mm -hmm. start understanding where people are, like young people are coming from in terms of their prior knowledge. And I think that would be really be the case with the cemetery as well. So thank you so much, Adam. This was really great. Um, thank you for like joining the like spooky <laughs> Halloween <laughs> series for a source Saturday. Um, all the like your Twitter handle will be below along with your bio, but any other like links or things that you think people might be interested in, um, like we'll put that below as well. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, this was great, and we will talk soon. Bye. Bye.